Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. This is, you know, we're, you know, we're rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. And the first person to realize that is the one who made a big deal. And, and that's what happened was that there were many other aspects to the cost to get this product to its end use. And that the, the spinning around on the one cent was, it was an amazing distraction, but it had so focused the executive team of the whole industry that, you know, when they actually changed it and said, listen, Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got John Wass, co-author of Choose Your Customer, How to Compete Against the Digital Giants and Thrive. John, I've barely started it and I already really like it. Welcome to the show and let's talk about the book. Thanks. I'm excited to be here and uh, looking forward to the conversation. So I want to dive more into your background in a minute, but can you give people just the overview of, of the book and, and kind of what they could expect from it? An overview of the book is we've been, my partner Jonathan Burns and I have been using techniques to understand the impact of uh, profitability to help companies choose the right customer because all revenue is not the same. Sometimes you try to be everything to everyone and that really isn't going to work for a lot of companies, especially when they're competing with some of the digital giants, when they can go out and go much more broad and, and be, have a lot more of those capabilities. A lot of the smaller companies really have to be very careful about how they choose their customer and make sure that when they choose that customer, it actually is a, you know, it's a profitable engagement. It's a profitable relationship. And that's really, really important now more than ever where with all the digital marketing and the high specialization that's, that's available, you really can't just broadly do everything to everyone because it might be very successful in one place, but cost you a fortune in another. And if you can't tell the difference, you can get yourself in big trouble. Yeah. Well, you know, I think one of the places that I've seen the biggest aspect of how bad it goes for smaller companies to act like bigger companies is marketing. You know, people are like, I've got friends that are CEOs of marketing agencies and, you know, they'll have somebody come in and say like, we want to do ads like Apple or we want to do ads like Nike. It's like, 
can I help you? Why don't you start with ads like Apple when Apple was making like $40,000, $400,000 a year? Why don't you start with those ads? And then once you get to the size Apple is, do the, size, do the kind of ads that they do at that size, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think the other piece of it is when they say they want to do ads, it's, well, who you want to talk to. And I think that's one of the most important things that we really encourage companies that we work with is to understand, you know, who are those, who are those customers? And, you know, if you're really new and you're, you're, you're trying to figure this stuff out, you do have to experiment a little bit. But a lot of companies have, have a lot of history. They, they actually have the information about who these people are. And one of the things we have found in our experience is that nine times out of 10, the most profitable customers that uh, a company has are not getting the resources they deserve. They're not the squeaky wheel. They're not the problem. They actually have a wonderful relationship with that customer. And what they've done over the years is they've pulled the resources away from their best customers to try to solve the problem with one of their worst customers or try to go find a new market segment or try to do something different. And they are literally walking away from what made them an incredible company. And if all they did was pay attention there, they would get improve their sales and they would use that money to invest in some of the changes they need to make. And that's, it sounds really simplistic, but it turns out to be very true. That's, that's a really critical thing is to really know who your profitable customers are, your profit peak customers are, and, and give them the love they deserve. (laughs) Make sure, make sure you're spending the time with them and, and, and listen to them. And, and it's, we have found consistently that you can both increase your sales, but improve your profit, not in a zero sum game kind of way, but in a, how else can I help you? We, we already have a great relationship. What else can I do for you? Kind of conversation. Yeah. Well, I, I want to talk about your background for a minute. So after MIT and Princeton, you went to Staples. Is that right? Actually, I went to uh, Staples before MIT. So I showed up at, at Staples doing direct marketing. So if Every time you walk into a retail store and you have to use your loyalty card, well, you can blame Tom Stenberg, myself, and this guy named Todd Grasnow. The three of us basically built out the first retail direct marketing integrated into the register. So we were the first people to do that. And I ran that whole direct marketing capability with a whole, I had to get a a separate computer room and, and a whole separate computer than the transactional system for Staples because the marketing was so data intensive that they wouldn't let me touch the computer for the actual uh, transactions. So mm-hmm. that's well, and, and you guys had really rapid growth at that period, right? Is that yeah? Is that- uh, I was there when they the the opening. The, I, I showed up just before they opened the third store, and I was there for eleven years. And we were the second fastest company in the world at that point to get to a billion dollars. So yes, it was rapid growth. So that was back in the day where uh, it wasn't pure software. It was like we literally had to put the stores in. We were opening like two stores a week and rolling out. And it it was very, very exciting. So it was was a fun time to be at Staples. What's a lesson that you couldn't have learned any other way than actually doing that? Well, one of the things that I did after marketing was I ended up being in charge of the supply chain. And we basically were growing so fast that we ended up with just a complete mess in the supply chain. We had like 37 distribution centers and we couldn't get out of our own way. Trucks were waiting two weeks to actually get in, make an appointment. So I was responsible to build out the new network and put in all the new systems. And when you put in new systems, one of the things that I think I really understood very quickly is data is the most important thing. So the first day we turned on the new system, a new just under a million square foot facility, we turned it on, 
and out go all the products. And it turned out we had a data problem with the, the unit count of paper towels. So before we literally could even figure this out, over half the trucks leaving the distribution center that day left with a full truckload of paper towels. And we delivered a full truckload of paper towels to 50 stores until we ran out of stock. And then I got all the calls. It was like, who is the idiot <laughs> that just dumped all the paper towels to 50 stores and took up the whole truck, right? And, that, and, then the, and then basically the transportation company was dying because they had to find twice as many trailers so what I learned there was data and automated systems can go through so fast and create so much havoc that you really have to pay attention when you put in new systems. And so that, that's something that I don't think anyone really gets until it happens to them. And then you go, unbelievable. <laughs> and then you never forget. And you never forget. It, it, and, and, and it's just the data is so critically important now. I mean, with systems running, and humans not there to make decisions. I'll give you another example. We worked with a client recently that their major initiative for a whole year was to convert their major clients to EDI ordering, to electronic data ordering, so fully automated ordering. Get the humans out, let the systems do it. So, And they did. The sales guys got paid. They checked the box. We went in to do our consulting and analytics, and what we found was the, they had a, a group of very large, incredibly unprofitable customers. And when we looked, what we found was that those customers were ordering seven times a day or more. And the ones that were their big customers that were really profitable were the ones that they didn't convert because the human was there and they were ordering once every seven days. And what happens is when you make these conversions, you know, it's no one's job to check to see how often the customer's ordering, right? The sales guy's going, revenue looks good, revenue looks good. And the distribution folks are going, I got to hit those orders. I got to keep my service levels up. I got to do all that stuff. And under all of that was all of these dinky little orders. And we had, and everyone's running around the warehouse, you know, you know, picking these small little orders, packing them up and putting them on, you know, literally in some instances, you know, two different trucks a day, you know, just with these dinky little orders and no one's paying attention. And they all think it's great until we run the numbers and go, wow, this is a real problem. <laughs> but there's another example of, People not really understanding the impact of data on automated systems. So that's yeah. that stuff you only learn by doing. It's like when we showed that to the CEO, he was like, you know, going, how does this happen? Now, how could that possibly have happened? But it literally falls through the cracks because systems do things differently than humans. And it really, once they get going, people can't see it. That's a great point. Well, you're the CEO of Profit Isle. Tell us a little more about what you guys do. Profit Isle, we are a software company, a SaaS uh, solution. We work with companies to help them literally see their profit landscape. The major innovation that we bring to the marketplace is that we basically drive the P&L down to the invoice line level of every transaction. So the profit and loss statement hasn't really changed in 200 years. It was designed by humans for humans, sort of. Now you get one big number and, you know, what is, you know, what at the end of the day, did I make money or not? That's sort of what's out there. But what we do is we basically take every line on the general ledger and dynamically assign it to every single invoice line. So if I bought a pencil in store 32 on Tuesday, it has its own full profit and loss statement versus I bought an eraser at store 57 on Friday. That has its own. And so we create this massive data set. So this, you know, you know, in some you know, terabytes of data, big, big data set. 
And then we do a cluster analysis to figure out where are the clusters of profitability. And it turns out that the 80-20 rule is alive and well in almost every business. And that what you find is that there are literally these concentrations of profit where companies are making somewhere between 150 and up to 700% of their profits in one place, and then literally giving it away and losing it in other places. And on average, they're making 5%. And so we basically literally create a, a visualization of that landscape and say, this combination of customers and products and operations is where you're making all your money. And this is where it isn't. And then we can graph that gap in the landscape, and we can then basically calculate what the change in profitability would be if you change the behavior to make it look like your best practice. So that's what we do. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's oh, it totally that's does. A, it's a little that's kind of amazing. So, and and who's your who's your typical client? What what's the profile of ideal clients for you guys? We generally work hundred million and up. So larger, we basically follow our own construct, which is we try to find islands of profit customers, which tend to be bigger for us. So we basically work with larger companies, complex, very complex situations. I've got you know we work with a lot of let's call it distributors that are may have six hundred thousand to one point two million products and three hundred thousand customers. We work with retailers that can have 1.2 million products and maybe 15,000 locations. Those huge data sets basically are beyond what humans can intuit. And basically, we use the computer to figure out those patterns, present them in a, uh, a graphical form, actually, to the executives so they can see the patterns and then change their behavior to drive improvements in profitability. And, and um, did you... Did you come from tech or, or what, what made you think this is what you wanted to do? I've been in, I started out in marketing and, and then because I'm an engineer, my, my degree out of Princeton is in engineering, actually operations research. So my senior thesis was the optimization of truck routing through uh, programming. So, but I went to Procter & Gamble in marketing. So this is the, the combination. So I migrated toward direct marketing. And when I joined Staples, I was actually, they brought me on because I was a numbers guy in marketing. So that, I sort of combined those two things. And, and, and Staples was that on steroids, right? So we were basically doing direct marketing at the cash register level with its own computer system. And so I basically combined the two things I enjoyed, which is working with numbers and, want, and seeing patterns with marketing. And so it, it evolved over time. My, my actually, I've been in both supply chain. I left, I left Staples in supply chain, went to MIT. I was going to get a PhD, ended up getting a master's and then started companies. My senior thesis advisor looked at me in, in 2000 and said, you don't want to get a PhD. Go, go have fun. Go, go start a company. So I did. I've been doing companies since 2000. And the company before Profitile was actually RFID tracking of medical devices. Uh, so we tracked medical devices from point of manufacture to point of implantation. And that was a fun company and sold that to Cardinal Health in 2013. And then oh, congratulations. Uh, migrated to a new adventure with, with Jonathan. And basically the concepts that he wrote about in 2010 in a book called Islands of Profit and Sea of Red Ink, we basically have created the software to make that happen at scale. So we work with the largest company we've ever worked with is 65 billion. So we, you know, we're handling, peta, well, that was almost petabytes of data, but huge, huge data sets that we go through and do cluster analysis and we do pattern recognition to to find these patterns that the humans that are actually making all the decisions and the corporations can then react to and, and change behavior and improve their profit. You know, I'm interested, what are any of your principles for hiring? When you think about 
the kind of the kind of brains that you need to help make sense of that much data. What, what's a principle for knowing that you're going to get you know the the level of talent instead of just somebody who interviews well? I look for demonstrated initiative and people who like to solve problems. And then when I find them, I hire them regardless of the open position. <laughs> so it, it, there's. There's two things that are really critical in companies that, you know, basically I'm sort of continuously in a startup. And the two things that are really critical are sort of innate curiosity, just loving to find the new thing and try something out, and a certain level of persistence, you know, this ability to sort of fail and get back up and do it again. And so those are the, those are the two key things I look for, people who have this energy and have demonstrated. I generally look for, you know, show me a time where you failed at something and what did you do about it? That's one of the key things because I find that people who have failed and, and persevered are really valuable. And the people who have always been successful, you just don't know what's going to happen when they, you know, sort of land on their face. Are they going to get back up again or, or, they aren't, or aren't they? So I'm looking for people who have demonstrated that they've sort of landed hard and got back up again. So. Yeah. How do, you, how do you figure that out? Is it just your questions? Do you spend time with them? Do you... Um, probationary period. What is your? What does that work? What does that look like for you? Well, first of all, I would say that I've my hiring fails about 35 percent of the time. <laughs> so, so I don't have an answer that's nailed that. So, but what we do is we prune relatively quickly. So, you know, working in companies, my companies, you're going to fail relatively soon. We're going to push you past what you're comfortable with. And, and you're going to fail. And the question is, what happens? And if they behave the way that, that you know, or, or they can be coached to get back up and keep going, then, then we hold on to them and develop them. If they just sort of freak out and, and are really uncomfortable. And, and, and by the way, uh, in, in some instances, I've seen people literally get sick. They get physically sick. It, it bothers them. And then we basically say, thanks, this just isn't the right place for you. And not that we're trying to make them sick, but, but certain people under pressure don't, don't do well. And, and sometimes you don't find that out until you actually try them. But the interview process is I always ask that one question, which talk to me about an opportunity, you know, something that you tried really hard at, gave it everything you had, and it failed. What did you do? What did you learn? Was that really, un you know, I just I ask about that. My, the rest of my team asks about all the technical stuff. I ask just like my interviews are relatively quick. I just ask a few questions, get a perception. And how, how big is the team these days? We have, we're just at, at ProfitIle right now. We're just under 25. Yeah. And most of them are actual, actually programmers. Okay. You know, both in some of the stuff I read before the interview and, and that you just brought up, I, I have developed a pretty serious obsession with the 80-20 principle. Yeah. I had one of my heroes, the guy who wrote the book, The 80-20 Principle, Richard Koch. Are you familiar with him? Do you know that book? No, I don't know that book. K-O-C-H, but it's yeah, pronounced Koch. He'd been, at, he'd been at BCG and then Bain and then started a consulting firm called L-E-K. And he sold, I want to say he sold his share for like $16 million or something. And then proceeded to use the 80-20 principle and kind of the star principle from BCG to turn into hundreds of millions, working like about an hour a day kind of a thing, you know? And it's fascinating because my whole life I got told work hard everywhere, always. And and like, I'm one of those guys that's like, that can hyper-focus and, you know, spend many, many hours on the same thing. And, and plus I'm like this driven guy who like kind of competitive, I want to be the best and whatever, right? And then I look at like, my heroes like Warren Buffett, right? Mm -hmm. And the guy says that his methodology borders on lethargy, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
And, and like, there's these folks that, you know, from a scientific standpoint, if hard work was the only way to get it, there's guys that prove that's not true. So we have, we have an option, you know, we don't have to keep those clients that are draining our profits. We don't have to, some people don't, right? That's right. That's right. And, Um, uh, no, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, uh, it's it's culturally difficult for many companies to acknowledge that. There's the, been this sort of gestalt that the customer's always right. Just always take care of the customer. All, and and I always, the conversation I have with all clients is anytime you end up with what I call a peanut butter rule, sort of just spread it evenly, you know you're in trouble. <laughs> it's like it, things don't work that way. Everything isn't the same. And so when you say always take care of the customer, my attitude is accept. It's sort of like people say, Amazon is free shipping. And I say, accept when they don't. And they don't, a lot of stuff. And so it's it's sort of like, it's like one of those marketing principles. It's sort of like everyone perceives it this way, but what really happens is this. And so I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with executive teams saying, all right, you have this deep DNA, which is take care of the customer. I'll give you another story, which I always get a kick out. So we're working with this company, and they're very proud of their next day delivery. Okay? And they think that this is the competitive advantage to, to take on Amazon. And, uh, and we found in their data that something on 30% of all of their outbound shipments were not next day. They were randomly outside of next day. So it's a reasonably significant piece. It, it, and it was, you know, substantially more profitable, okay? Just almost 10 points more profit, just big, big deal, right? So we say to them, you know, and this is what kind of stuff we do. We said, listen, if you can go from 30% to 35%, it's worth $12 million more profit, which turns out to be, you know, X percent more profit. It was, it was a big deal. It's like a, a big number to your point about working hard versus working smart. And so they go, wow, the, the, you know, the executive says, that's great. And uh, we stayed with them and then they call, you know, we get a, a note back like a, a month later and they say, well, it's not working. I said, what do you mean it's not working? The, the people on the front line are really agitated. They don't, you know, they don't like this. And I said, well, let me listen to what they're doing. So uh, I'm listening on, you know, the call center there because they, they have people taking orders. And the way that it came out in the script was, thank you very much for the order. Okay. Now, would you not like this tomorrow? <laughs> That's how they closed the order because... Culturally, they were so focused on overnight that by the time it got to the front line, it was like, you know, they were protecting their overnight business and they basically literally had it in the script. So would you not like this overnight? So we said, okay, let's change the last question to what is the absolute best day for you to receive this? And we, you know, just change the word absolute best day for you to receive this. We'll take care of you. And it turned out that they went to 38%. (laughs) And made even more money. And the frontline people were happy, right? Because they were taking care of the customer. But it got caught in this cultural norm as it went from the executive, which was, we're going to increase the amount of not, you know, we're going to decrease overnight shipment. And that came across to the frontline people as this this, this sort of invasion of their their relationship with the customer. So again, at the end of the day, it's always people. You know, I, I can give you numbers and, and I can tell you exactly what to do, what the numbers say to do. But if you don't work well with people, if you can't sort of communicate and, and figure out what's going to motivate the human beings who are actually changing their behavior, it doesn't all come together. So that's well, that's another piece of learning here. And there's another principle there. Like, so for me, like, you know, 
I, I listen to many, many audiobooks. I do all these interviews, right? I, I'm constantly like looking for like, what are those 20, you know, what's the 20% of the 20% of the 20% yeah. when it comes to the most powerful business principles, right? That's what I'm looking for. And so these interviews are almost like a treasure hunt for me, you know, like, what's it, what are they going to say? But, you know, as you talk there, one of the other things of like, you know, one of the treasure hunt things that I feel like I found is, you know, I look at like lean operational excellence, continuous improvement, whatever you want to call it. And depending who you talk to, it's somewhere between 75% to 95% of those initiatives fail. Okay. And I can go into a lot of reasons why I think that is, but like I've gone to Japan and done the tours of Toyota and I've gone to places all across the States and I've, I got certified to teach programs on that stuff. Right. And I recognize that I'm probably not going to spend the 30 years it takes to become the highest level practitioner. Luckily those guys will work for an hourly wage. Okay. And I found on hiring them for certain things, but one of the fascinating, very simple principles, and I'm surprised at how many times the most, the most powerful principles end up being way simpler than you would think. Cause if it's going to be so great, you, it feels like it should be harder or something. Right. But this principle of like, go to where the work is being done. You know, yeah. like, yeah. hey, can I get the script of what they're actually saying? Is it of like, what did a manager tell a regional director that told the VP that told the SVP that told the C-level person that told you? Yeah, right? Exactly. Like, can yeah. I just get the script? Can, you know, can we get a recording? Right. Yeah. It sounds so brutally simple. It is yep. so rare. The the it, Japanese, it, 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 their word for it is called going to Gemba, going to the workplace, going to where okay. the work is getting done. Mm-hmm. It is so uncommon. <laughs> it's true. It is. It is. People basically use the the patterns. But one of the other, the other principles that I that we use a lot is I actually learned this first at Procter Gamble. One of my first jobs there was I was doing marketing for Tide Powder, which at the time was the largest brand in the world. And what I learned just to get right to it was spend money where they're buying. Don't spend money where they're not buying. And you know, as a young whippersnapper, I came in and said, oh, we're not, we're, we don't have, we have very low market share over here. I want to spend a lot of money and change that behavior. And, and my brand manager at the time said, let, let me, let me sit you down, son, and tell you how it is. And, and it was basically spend money. And, and, and that is one of these key principles. The first thing we do is we go in and say, you can make X amount of dollars by just shifting resources to your most profitable customers. And I can't tell you how many executive teams they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me where the problem is. Because I want to fix that problem where we're losing all the money. And I tell them again and again, the fastest way to profitability is spend more money where you're making money. But we teach our managers to be problem solvers. We teach them to go find the problem, put a team together, and go fix that issue. And it turns out that that's actually one of the reasons why all these things fail is because uh, the joke I say to the executive team is I said, listen, you just hired these smart guys out of MIT. If I walk up to your top 10 salespeople and you say, hey, we just hired these smart guys from MIT and they're going to tell you how to sell better. You know, what are you going to get? You're going to get these guys sitting back in their chair, their arms crossed and hunkered down going, these guys don't know my business. And, and so I, the alternative is you go say, we hired these guys from MIT and we walk in and say, congratulations, guys. You are the most profitable salespeople in the company. What can we give you to get you so you can do more of whatever you're doing? And tell us more about what you're doing. Radically different than that. I mean, it's just like, and then what we end up doing is saying, you know, you know we, we pick two or three of them and say, we want you to go around the country and tell everyone what you're doing. Because it's Jimmy, who's been there for 22 years, or Martha, who's been there for 17 years, is going around. If, if I did that, or if anyone on my team did that, it, you know, we wouldn't even you know, make it in the door. But 
the bit, the most rapid change we've ever been able to do is to get the best people, the people who have been doing something that we now identified as being a highly profitable activity, and get them to communicate to the rest of the organization. Credibility is there to begin with, and now we're leveraging those things, and it's just amazing to see them, you know, step up and 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 be recognized by the company and other people, especially in large companies, seeing the company recognize other people in the company lifts everybody up. That's a technique that we use all the time, and, and, and it tends to be a little bit of a battle with the uh, executive team to get them to do that just because they're trained the opposite way. You know, it's interesting. In my, like as you're saying, I'm seeing that in my own life. Like, you know, when I kind of took my break from finance and was doing consulting, and we, we still have a consulting firm, I think about like, you know, charge a bunch of money to get come in and advise some CEO or whoever I'm working with, right? And if I'm smart enough to shut up and ask them, well, what's worked so far? Oh, you've got this big problem. We need to solve this thing. When you, when it comes to working on that, what's been the most successful so far? <laughs> That's like the best thing I can ever say is not actually any <laughs> advice. It's this question. And then followed up of followed up with, you know, if you were going to double down on that, what would that look like? You know, yeah. instead of like, let me tell you about the last book I read, or let me tell you about the guy in my podcast, which is what I'm tempted to do. Cause I want, I love learning so much. Then I want to share what I learned. Mm-hmm. Right. And like those times when I can shut up and, and ask them what's worked before is inevitably the absolutely number one best strategy. Yeah. It makes a big difference. And then the other thing that in today's day and age really is also important is to have the numbers to back it up. You know, early on, I go back far enough to the green screens and, but we used to joke that if you showed up with a, a green bar piece of paper and whatever was printed on the green bar had twice as much credibility as anything that you could write, you know, in, in a document because it came out of the computer. And so it was, it was perceived to be the truth. The variation on that now is we did, you know, some analytics or we used big data or we did something like that. And you show up with that and it gives you that same type of credibility. Now, it's, it's even better if you're right, which we tend to be. But but the point that I'm making is intuition backed up with data is the key to all of this stuff. And I would also think that the they don't always come one to the other, right? So pattern recognition is not trivial. It, it, you know, humans actually, that's the thing that humans do better than computers. I mean, I know it sounds a little, but humans are intuitive pattern recognizers, and they're actually better at it in many instances than, than computers are, especially in very complex situations. And so what you just talked about is really important, is to get a sense of what the people are, are intuiting and then see if the numbers back it up and then get that, that feedback loop going. That's the most powerful thing that I see out, out of business. So I want to talk about more about the book, specifically this tagline. You know, So the book is Choose Your Customer and the tagline is How to Compete uh, Against the Digital Giants and Thrive. I want to tweak that a little bit and see what kind of advice you have for me. So you know, in the finance world, there's something like 3% of the firms have, you know, have 80% of the assets. It's not an 80, 20. It's like a three twenty. It's a, it's an 83, right? 3% of the firms have 80% of the assets in management, you know, $7 trillion black, black rock, you know, folks like us. So when you think about folks like us, what kind of ideas would you have for us to think about, you know, competing against some extremely large incumbents? Well, I would say that, it's, it's mostly when you're competing against these large behemoths, there's always, you know, in terms of a competitive advantage, there's always niche markets. If you, if you focus, you can find the niche 
and 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 become the best in that space. And what I find is that the different strategies are find that and and own it. And then the way to grow isn't necessarily to try to do what you did in the niche everywhere. But I would argue that the way to grow in these days is find another niche player and see if there's synergy and then another niche player and see if there's synergy. But don't end up with a peanut butter spread. I can't tell you how many companies uh, that we work with that did an acquisition that was incredibly doing really well in a niche and they tried to incorporate it and they ended up with a camel, right? They ended up with half of this and half of that and it was awful. So I think you have to respect the fact that business is really a series of aggregated niches. It's no longer a big market. It really isn't. And so you may, from a distance, you know, if you don't have enough perspective, it all looks like it's a big blob. But when you get closer and you actually look at it, it's a series of very discrete places. And, and if you can understand that and you can keep sort of the coherence of the niche that you've discovered and then another one and then another one and keep them separate and don't get them blurred, I think that's the critical aspect of, aspect of success. So if you're going to say, how do I grow? I would basically say, find one or two niches, get some more comfort managing multiple niches, and then keep adding more. And eventually, you're going to look like they look like, because that's, by the way, how they got there. I mean, Amazon is, is a class. I mean, one of the, I was just, I guest lecture at MIT in Jonathan's class, my partner's class. And one of the things I always tell them, it's a class in entrepreneurship, I say, you know, all those overnight successes, you forget that there was a six to eight year introductory tale. <laughs> For almost every single one of them, none of them become the you know this this thing overnight. It just it doesn't really work that way. When you actually look back, you find there's a long introductory tale. You know, uh, Google is a great example. You know, six years of wandering in the wilderness until they figured something out. Uh, Amazon started out as the ultimate niche players, right? We're going to sell books. <laughs> so in any event, I, I just feel like that's the one piece of advice I'd give anyone: is find your niche do a really good job and to expand, find another niche and then figure out what the synergies across the niches are, but don't combine them. I love that advice. And it rings true to me as soon as you say it, because I do think some of the things that we're doing that we're pursuing are, are hard for a giant bureaucracy to do, you know, it, it actually really works against them. And, and that's, you know, not everybody's going to like what we do, but you know, where we're appealing to, you know, more kind of like the wealthy entrepreneur who sold a company or, you know, is, you know, made, made yeah. a kind of single digit millions and they're, they don't want to do like, they're not interested in 3% bonds or one and a half percent treasuries. Like they want to make some money. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, again, you found and we're going after bread. like the more, the more aggressive real estate type of yeah. income and, there you, go. <laughs> you know, size is an anchor for those guys. The, the it's, it's hard for the big giant guys in that space, but I probably need to quit. I need to not like apologize for not being the big guy. I need to like embrace the, like, you know, I feel bad that those guys, that those guys are like too big of a cruise ship to be able to navigate through these tight things that we're, we're that we can get through because we're nimble. Uh, I think that's exactly right. I think you step right into that space and say, yeah, that's exactly why we're here and own that space and say, that, and, and I think that's the, the, that's a little bit scary, but also really valuable is to, sort of step into that space and say, that's what we're going after. Because if you do that, you actually say no to somebody and small companies in particular and, and myself, I mean, I, you know, when we're, you know, we're growing, it's like someone steps up and says, I really want to work with you. And you go, I, you don't fit. <laughs> 
You know, I had an advisor once, uh, Ishpamig is up on the um, upper peninsula of Michigan. And he used to sort of, that was his, that was his word when I would show up with an account that I was excited about. He would just look at me and go, Ishpamig, which massive distraction. You know, you may get this, this sense that it's sort of cool. It's basically, you're out there, you're, it's creating complexity in the organization. It's, it's creating lots of transactions. Everyone's running around trying to take care of these folks. And you're getting buckus. You're getting nothing from a profit point of view. So it, it's sort of uh, uh, a really big deal to be able to say no, and it's hard to do. I mean, it's really hard to do. So I, I, I empathize, and but that's the discipline of of having a little bit of a, of a board there. The other thing I would tell you is the worst person in any company to be the primary salesperson is the president and the owner, because no one gets to tell you, eh, that's ish for me. <laughs> <laughs> you basically just keep bringing them in. So if you are the president and the owner, it's really valuable to get an advisory board. Not that you have to talk to them all the time, but that outside perspective is so hard to, to keep when you're in the day-to-day. So that's another piece of, of opportunity that I think is why consultants exist, but also for small companies, get a little kitchen cabinet. They're really valuable. <laughs> that's funny. My co-founders... It's like my brother is the farthest. He's my one. Three of us, four of us founders here. And, and three of us have been together for, for years and years. And my brother is like the complete opposite end of the spectrum. It's great because we got everything covered, except that we don't see eye to eye on some things, right? So it's like, there's plenty of times that he thinks what I think is dumb. But if John, if the tiebreaker also thinks that I'm dumb, then I'm like, okay, I must be. Right? Yeah, well, that's actually a good I think that's a great working relationship. It's really valuable to see that. Well, can you tell us can you tell us a story from the book? What's one of your favorite stories in the book? I think one of the really foundational stories is the Baxter story that Jonathan experienced, and it's still true today. By the way, we, we're still working in this industry, but the Baxter story is a story of how people get so focused on price that they don't see anything else. So Baxter is base, it was basically this is back quite a few years ago. They're selling the the IV drip bags. And that was an intense commodity. You know, people were shifting suppliers based on a cent per ounce or, you know, it's just, it was at that kind of level. And the work that Jonathan did back then, which led to this concept and the book and so forth was he basically said, you know, what's happening to these IVs? What's going on with them? I mean, what, is, is price really the driving factor here? Or is everyone so focused on one thing that they've lost perspective? Well, obviously, long story short is, you know, by the time you put the IV, you know, into the patient's arm, the cost of the IV is less than 5% of the total cost to get it there. Okay. So we are clear, you know, this is, you know, we're, you know, we're rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. And the first person to realize that is the one who, who made it a big deal. And, and that's what happened was that there were many other aspects to the cost to get this product to its end use. And that the the spinning around on the one cent was it was an amazing distraction, but it had so focused the executive team of the whole industry that you know when they actually changed it and said, "Listen, I will actually get it to you. You're spending, you know, I'm going to send you, sell you this thing for you know a dollar. You're spending, you know, almost ten dollars to get it from the back receiving dock of the hospital to the patient." Tell you what, I'll get it halfway there and I'll only charge you $3. And oh, all right, I'll give it to you for 99 cents. It just, it changed the rules. And, and so I guess 
that's the piece of the work that we do all the time. You know, one of the other things that we see that it happened then and now it's happening even faster with these automated systems. And there's no such thing as a price anymore. It's the price that you get on the internet is for you, for that product at that time. And, and you have all these computers that are flopping the prices around dynamically. Everything's moving around. And uh, so we go into these places. And, and again, you have people who are still focused on price as the only variable. And it's like, I can actually give you almost any price as long as you agree to different behaviors. Right? If you come to me and say, I, I want that IV bag for two cents, I can say, I can sell you that IV bag for two cents. If you behave this way, if you let me run your back room and you pay me $5 to move it from the back, you know, from the, from the door, you know, to, up to the room. And, and I can give that to you because I'll make money over here because you were losing money over there. So we have these conversations all the time. One of the questions I ask almost all of our clients is show me your contract. What is the contract with your customer? And sometimes they have it, sometimes they don't, but there's always a contract with a the customer. There's always an implied service associated with the price. And it's sort of like, you know, you're negotiating with one hand behind your back. I mean, it's sort of like, I'm only going to work with price. I'm not going to talk about service. And, and you, you can't get the balance. So that's one of the things that comes up when you do full profitability. You basically see everything else that the company's thrown in to see if they're actually netting out profit. And and that's a new concept for a lot of people. It, it isn't for the digital giants because they're basically running this huge network, which and then they're flexing prices dynamically around. And you know, Amazon was the first one of the first companies to start charging you and and just and 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 uncharging you, right? So they'll give you a dollar back if you don't do this, or they'll. But the point is that they're manipulating your behavior. And they've connected the dots between what you're going to pay and the behavior you're going to work with. And <clears throat> that's the real innovation. And that's what we're talking about is that relationship with your customer. Choose your customer. Choose the way you're going to engage with them and focus there because getting that balance right and doing that for one niche will allow your company to either thrive or certainly not go out of business. And, and you're also going to know a lot more about how to be more successful after you understand. Yeah, that's great. It, it is interesting how it seems like it takes time to slow down and think. I couldn't agree more. It is. And the one thing that uh, I think it's particularly acute for executives, you go to the executive suite, they are bombarded by anecdotal crises constant. And most of the front of their brain is taken up with that rapid, you know, response, you know, call and response. It's like, all right, who's got the next? And it's it's a reactive mode for most of them, except when they say we're now going into planning, right? And they step away and they try to isolate themselves and and put that longer term brain in, in place. And it's a challenge. It really is a challenge. And I think uh, Jess, you, you brought up a really critical point. I think the people who are successful are holding close to their chest some key principles that they regulate their behavior against. They are, are, are asking themselves a series of questions when they're getting ramped up in that flight or fright mode. You know, it's like, is this where I should be spending my time? And am I thinking about this correctly? And what are the real resources being required to to absorb this information and those are the those are the most successful executives because 
they're 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 using some key principles to filter this massive amount of information coming to them and everyone is showing up with a sense of urgency a sense of crisis and if if that's all you do it, it can take 200% of your time so the people who are successful find a way to 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 filter that and and as a consultant you see it right you you see different behavior patterns and you can intuitively feel the ones who are, are creating enough distance to make better decisions. Azuni, can you speak to that? You know, can you speak to that along the lines of the 80-20 principle and just the people who you respect or just things you've observed and like this idea of slowing down and thinking in relation to the 80-20 principle and just how you've observed that in your career and clients? I, yeah, I, I, let me, I, I guess the way I find it is we were working with an entrepreneur who built furniture stores, regional furniture stores, just an incredibly intuitive genius, right? He sort of intuits situations, but what he does more than anything else is he tends to ask questions. He tends not to take what you bring. It, it's, it's, it's a behavior that I noticed was you come in and you say, I want to talk to you about X, Y, and Z. And he basically listens. And then he says, I want to know about A. <laughs> I want to know about this over here. And inevitably, what he's asking about is, I want to know why you think our customers think that's important. I understand why you just told me it's important. But I want to know why you think our customer thinks that important. And if it takes you 15 minutes to get from there to here, you know, he's literally lost. He's, he's like, you know, he's like ADD and he's, he's already off to the next thing. He said, keep thinking. <laughs> and, he leaves, and, and, he, and he leaves. And, and so it, it's, it's, but the point that it brought home to me was he's got a filter. And, and so the 80, 20 rule is he figured out that that question sort of capitates the, the noise. It, 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 it keeps him from having to deal with that stuff. And he's, and what I thought was really valuable about it, and the reason it, it, it struck me so, because he's a deep intuitive, right? He's not a numbers guy. You, you know, you sit down and you walk him through numbers and his eyes sort of roll in the back of his head. And that's not how he runs his business. He runs it through this deep intuition. And, and his filter is, tell me why that's important to this person. And tell me why that's important to this other person. And he doesn't care why it's important to you because you've already sort of figured that out. But he's trying to connect the dots both across the company and from the company to the customer. And, and he's always asking that question. I, I watched him in these meetings and inevitably he's asking that question in five or six different ways. And what it tended to do was connect the organization and connect the organization to the customers because he was constantly getting people to flip their perspective. And so you ask about the 80-20 rule. What I, what I found was that there are some people who run the numbers and see it, but the ones that I am most sort of uh, in awe of because I, I don't know how to get there. It's like they come up with these intuitive screening questions or, or behaviors that create activities in the organization and, and the way the organization engages their customers that truly deliver value. And, and that's a seriously cool thing. So if it's not exactly the 80-20, but it is insofar as there's a demonstrated management technique that, that they're using to keep the noise from cluttering them and, and getting them to stay focused on the things that they know are important and not get overwhelmed by the minutiae day to day. 
Well, I really see 80-20 in that. I mean, and I like, I love all the books. I love Shane Snow's Smart Cuts. I love, there's a number of, of folks who've got great things to say on the subject. But but for me, the 80-20 principle nails it the most. And one of the things Kosh talks about is this idea that there's like this very few number of things that are absolutely vital to success. Mm-hmm. And this huge number of things we do that are, are, are generally useless. And as you point out, sometimes actually stealing success, yeah. right? Right. And as you say that, I just can't help but think like, I've had so many startup failures, right? Like, I think I started like 13 or 14 companies and like, I made a ton of money on a couple of them. And then the others were like disasters, right? Mm -hmm. And I think about the disasters and it has a lot to do with assumptions. It has to do with like, when I stopped listening, when I hadn't tested enough and just assumed that we we knew, right? Mm -hmm. And then now I've like, it's been so painful those few, lo- you know, it's the losses have been so painful that I'm, I'm more gun shy. I'm less likely to charge ahead. Right. Mm-hmm. And what gives me confidence is when I can have deep conviction about their motivations, when I can really, really have that like deep feeling like, oh, they are going to be exceedingly motivated for this. Like, this is not hard. They are going to want that so bad. And we have some way to confirm that mm-hmm. then, then I can feel confident we're not doing something dumb again. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I, I absolutely. It's, it's, it's like it's, a, it's a small aspect that has huge outsiders. Like of yeah. all the different things, their motivation is just one of them, but it seems to like wipe it, out so many others. It, it's a, it's huge. It's a problem statement. Do you have clarity about the problem? I mean, especially hanging around MIT, everybody's got a cool technology. They got this cool new widget. They've got something that's really cool, and inevitably, it is cool. I mean, you can go, damn, that is really. Good. But you know, three quarters of them don't have a problem statement. They, they, it's sort of like, I got this thing. Now I'm trying to figure out who might be interested in using it, right? That's when you know you've got a dangerous situation. <laughs> so exactly to your point, it's like what you really need is I see, I have an intuition. I have a deep understanding of this problem area. Of This I know is a deep problem. I've talked to people. They've communicated their frustration. And I have, a, I have an answer for that problem. That's when you know you're going to be successful. It's still not easy. It's still lots of things between you and success. But to your, exactly to your point, the probability of success is substantially higher than it is if you just have this cool capability and you're looking for a place to lob it in. Well, and my problem is when I, when I assume I know what they're going to want and I've convinced myself they're going to want it, that that's, that's where you go. Like when I start basing, basing decisions on what I'm sure they're going to like versus what we've verified they're trying to push money into our hands for. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, I, I, I know I get it. I get it very much. And also the other thing that I've found is that you need to make sure that the people who have the problem can afford to pay for the solution. <laughs> There's always that. <laughs> I need details, but it turns out that it's important. I've solved very I've solved problems in the past where they just weren't willing to pay for the solution. So Well, listen, I know we're about out of time. Besides sending everybody to Amazon to get their own copy of Choose Your Customer or over to uh chooseyourcustomer.com. Where else where else can people connect with you? At uh, Profitile. Uh, Profitile.com. Great. Well, thanks for doing this. Well, this was a real pleasure. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for uh, having me on your on your podcast. You bet. Bye everyone. <laughs>